Axis Mundi. Axis Mundi. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco, here today with my co-host. I'm Dan Miller, professor of religion and social thought at Landmark College. And we, we were just talking, Brad, this this trade-off that you have a child, and which means you don't sleep, uh, and that's like the rough part of having kids. Uh, but you're also not grading now, and end of semester grading, and I am, so um, I don't know. Maybe we could toss a coin, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the kid is, is more work than grading, having, having done exactly what you're doing in the past. It, no, I, I think it is. I, I mean, yeah, I have a, I have a, a 10 week old. Um, I do overall. Yes. I think there is no contest. However, I will say I did look up the other day in my fatigue and my uh, lack of sleep and my just total kind of, uh, you know, melted coping brain. And thought, you know, I'm not grading. There, there are not 50 or 100 final projects waiting for me. So I will say it is a thing. And for all of you teachers and professors and others out there, you know, this time of year is it hurts. It's a hard time of year. So uh, good luck grading. There's a great meme going around that says if you want your grading to be done, you actually have to grade. So I, you know, I don't know how you do it, Dan. I that's my problem. Often I'm like, I haven't I haven't graded in like twelve years. I just give yeah. all my students fees. It's fine. I'm like, yeah, just don't tell the accreditors. <laughs> That's, I I sit down and I'm like, hey, if you grade five of these, you get to go get like a snack or you I'm, get to make I am coffee. A total self reward you know? person. Yeah. Like, yeah, like you set up the little things. Do you ever or the things you shouldn't do? Like, you've got the students who you know are just going to knock it out of the park, and so. You, you kind of save them to the end because if you do them first, then yeah. Um, well, and but then I'm, it turns into like, I graded one, so now I get cookies or I graded a half of one. So now I'll, I'll take a three-hour nap. Anyway, all right. Um, all right, friends. So today uh, there's, there is a lot going on. And this is one of those days where I'm not going to lie. I, I have, I, I thought to myself, we really need to do more than an hour on a Friday. And I don't know if that will ever happen. We, we you know, Dan and Dan has already looked at me like, what, what did you just say? Um, but we could talk about the fact that Trump made dictator comments this week. We could talk about fake electors in Nevada being uh, being charged. We could talk about Hunter Biden and tax evasion. We could talk about Mike Johnson claiming that this is a Moses moment. Uh, we could talk about uh, just a, a litany of things. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, we're, we're going to talk today uh, almost exclusively about issues surrounding Israel and Palestine about what's happening there, but but also what's happening with uh, U.S. aid uh, to the region, to some comments and phenomena that have uh, appeared uh, on U.S. soil this week in terms of uh, politicians, U.S. presidents, excuse me, college presidents. Uh, I want to talk about Biden and uh, Biden's losing support of Muslim Americans, of young people, and so on. So that's all on the table. Dan, I want to give just a minute of a little bit of like what's happening right now. And then I'm going to throw it to you to give us a kind of 
conceptual analytical framework to guide today, and I'll jump in at various points as you do that. So let me start by just saying we are now at a point where the ceasefire has ended, uh, hostages have been released, and uh, there's continued pressure uh, from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to um, make sure that Israel's military operations in southern Gaza are protecting civilians. However, there is very little indication that that is happening. Uh, civilian uh, aid uh, and civilian safety are collapsing. Um, and so uh, if you think that that is just a sort of subjective opinion or just me kind of giving what I think, I will uh, refer you uh, to the Secretary General of the United Nations, who this week invoked Article 99 which is a huge deal. It's the first time it's been done, I believe, since 1989. And uh, it really is uh, used only when the Secretary General believes that uh, a sense of peace and order on an international scale have been threatened. I'll just read you like a sentence or two of the letter that uh, he wrote on January 6th. I am writing under, under Article 99 of the United Nations Charter to bring the attention of the Security Council, a matter which, in my opinion, may aggravate existing threats to the maintenance of international peace and security. More than eight weeks of hostilities in Gaza and Israel have created appalling human suffering, physical destruction, and collective trauma across Israel and the occupied Palestinian Authority. Uh, there is a meeting today, I believe, Dan Friday, of the UN Security Council about this very matter. And so uh, we do have a situation, uh, and we've talked about this, Dan, uh, over the last uh, six, seven weeks on this show. We have mentioned it. We have uh, commented on it, but we will just say again today in an extended analysis of this that uh, I'm speaking for myself now, that uh, there have been 15,000 Palestinians killed uh, since the, uh, the, uh, what happened uh, in October, and uh, there is indiscriminate bombing there is seemingly a ignoring of international law when it comes to warfare and the rules of engagement. Uh, all of that to say, um, at this point, we have, and, and y'all can go listen to the archives. Please listen to the last five or six weeks of the show before you email me. Um, what happened with Hamas attacks on uh, Israelis was uh, horrific, as we have said maybe 10 times already. What is happening now uh, is, is truly uh, a humanitarian crisis. And it's one that I think what we want to get into today, uh, among other things, is tied up with American aid to Israel and the types of conditions or lack of conditions it puts on that aid. Uh, it ties into calls for ceasefire uh, and Biden not wanting to call for a ceasefire. Um, it plays into the Biden administration wanting to support Israel seemingly in ways that are, uh, I'll just use the word indiscriminate, and yet also wanting to say that humanitarian aid is being pushed to Gaza in ways that are going to be um, game-changing. We'll get into all of that, but that is where we stand right now. And so, Dan, I want to throw it to you because there's a lot happening uh, here in this country regarding this issue with politicians and college presidents. And I think you have some uh, some kind of four concepts or four uh, uh, 
ways that we can think about these issues that might be helpful and might uh, at least illuminate the pitfalls that people often fall into when they are trying to think about uh, supporting occupied Palestine and what appears to be an attempted genocide of Palestinian people, uh, the displacement of millions of Palestinians in accordance with or simultaneous with or uh, taking mind of the 1,200 uh, Israelis that were killed uh, on October 7, uh, the rising anti-Semitism in this country and other places, and so on and so on and so on and so on. So Dan, I'll throw it to you uh, to help us disentangle some of these things conceptually. Yeah. Well, one of the things that makes me think of when you talk about the Biden administrative response, uh, administration response, is like everybody has seen, or maybe you know, that parent who's like always telling their kid to stop doing something, but they never like actually do anything to stop the kid from doing it. And that's, I feel like the Biden administration often like, you know, you got Blinken and others who make these statements about what their expectations are and so forth, but there's nothing that, nothing much that seems to be happening to like force those through, right? Um, and, and I think that's something we'll come back to. Yeah. So, you know, you and I have talked, uh, I know everybody listening to this has been talking to people in their lives about Israel-Palestine. I have students who ask about this, colleagues who ask about this. Uh, it came up at the conference I was at, you know, a couple years, uh, a couple years ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, and things like that. And one of the things that I, I was thinking about this week is that I feel like it has become almost impossible to sort of meaningfully or productively discuss it, uh, because there are lots of cross-cutting issues. Um, I know I've gotten comments from folks, and I think you probably have too, wanting us to do more or saying we didn't do enough. No matter where you are on the topic, somebody's not going to like where you are, uh, and that, that kind of creates a pressure. So I, you know, I've been giving some thought to this, and I'm, I'm something of a slow processor. I have to have time to kind of work through stuff, and I've, I, I'm still learning, <laughs> but I figured out a while back that I'm often better if I don't try to uh, share my opinion on things before I actually kind of know what I think. Uh, then waiting until I actually do know what I think. I get myself in less trouble. Um, so I've been thinking about this this week. And it's so what I really was thinking about is I think there are sort of four kind of fallacies that, that people fall into in trying to, to engage on issues of Israel-Palestine. And these are, these are issues, I think, no way we're going to have enough examples. Like you, you could do endless examples of all of these, right? But they don't just map on to right or left. They don't just map on to like religious Americans versus secular Americans. They don't uh, just map on to uh, what kind of religion somebody is a part of, if they are a part of one. They really cut across these, um, but I think some play out more in others. And what I wanted to think about was these fallacies, and we're going to look at, at these. I think you've got some examples that will illustrate some of these. I've got some examples that will illustrate some of these. But the first one is this. So I'm just going to dive into the first one. I mentioned this a, a few episodes back, uh, probably uh, maybe the first time that we talked about this, uh, going back to you know sort of uh, that period in October, early November, whenever that was. But the first one, and this has come up a lot with students this week, is the, the fallacy of conflating explanation with justification, right? So what you can get on this is the kind of notion that if we explain why something happens, why a group does what it does, that that makes it okay that they did that, right? That it justifies their actions. And I see this sort of pervading a lot of the discussions about Israel-Palestine from a number of different ways, right? So I think all of us can understand, uh, I think we should be able to and, but I hear people say, why would anybody support Hamas? Why would anybody support movements like this? Well, you have to go back to a history of 
uh, a settler colonial state and the displacement of Palestinians and the wars uh, with Israel and occupied territory, all of that history, the history piece, you have the ways that Israel has treated and, and the policies they've enacted against the Palestinians for decades, right at this point. You have, I think, the hardening of those over time as Israel has moved further to the right politically, right? Uh, I've noted this before. There are parts of the governing coalition in Israel now that the U.S., right, and even Republicans in the U.S. used to be very critical of and say it would be a terrible idea to have these people in power, and they are now part of the governing coalition. So as Israeli politics have moved further to the right, their policies uh, toward the Palestinians have become harsher. You have basically the withdrawing of any kind of notion of a two-state solution, all of that kind of stuff, right? So it is completely understandable in situations like that why people cleave to movements uh, that are uh, opposed to Israel and Israel's policies, right? Whether that would have been the Palestine Liber Liber Liberation Organization, whether that would have been Hamas, whatever. You also have the fact that a lot of these groups uh, do things to like help people, right? They don't, they don't just do violent things. They do things like they provide food and welfare services. And you have this, this people have seen the maps about the population density in uh, these occupied areas and lack of resources and so forth. They provide all these. So all of that is to say, we shouldn't be surprised when people cleave to all kinds of movements that promise to do something about what they're experiencing that promise to help them, that promise to provide them with hope and so forth, okay? That doesn't justify the actions that Hamas undertook in Israel. And the reason I say that is this. I have seen people who I think are afraid to be critical of the actions that Hamas took because they think that this somehow means that they can't, you know, hold on to all of those, those oppositions to Israeli policies and so forth, right? I have also seen, I've, I've experienced plenty of people who say to me, well, why in the world would anybody support Hamas? And I tell that story I just told. I tell them things that they often didn't know about the formation of Israel and how you know, it displaced lots of Palestinians and all of that stuff that a lot of our listeners know, <laughs> uh, and they let me know that they know it, that you know, and they don't hear that. And then they immediately say, oh, so I guess you don't have any problem with, with killing civilians and, and children and women. And of course I do, right? It's not a justification. If we want to cool the temperature down and look at a, like another illustration of this, uh, I taught a class this semester. Uh, the class just ended, but it's a, just a global history class. So you talk about World War II, and it's got a section on why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, right? And I tell my students, when I grew up, I don't think I ever heard any explanation of why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Strategic interests, military interests, the ideology, all that stuff. Does it mean that I, I think it was cool, good, justified, whatever, that, the, you know, that there was a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor? No, I don't. Osama bin Laden gave reasons. I don't believe them, but he gave them for why they attacked uh, the World Trade Center when they did. I can explain the rationale. Does it mean I accept it or think it's justified? No. So I think that's the first fallacy. And we have to be able, we have to, be able to analyze something. We have to be able to look at a situation and say, why did they do this? Or what reasons did they give? Or if somebody felt justified in doing something, why? Whether I accept the justification or not. I think this is the first fallacy, is that if we try to understand something, we're somehow justifying it. Whether that is Israeli policy toward the Palestinians, because we'll get that too. People will talk about, you know, the Arab neighbors who've talked about wanting to push Israel into the sea. And obviously the history coming out of 
the Holocaust and the attempted genocide of the Jewish people and all of that background that goes into that, that is all there. Understanding that, does that mean that we have to think that everything that a particular state does is justified? I don't think it does. So that's the first fallacy and just a really basic conceptual distinction that to explain something, to try to understand it, which is something that I think you and I have an interest in doing, right? It's part of why we do the things that we do, is not to justify. So I'll throw it over to you. Uh, obviously, I've got three more of these, but that's the first one is this notion of the fallacy of, of linking or conflating explanation of something for justification of something. So we've talked about this before, and I just say, I, I'll say again that I think what happens when you fall into the trap you're talking about, that if I try to understand, then I am thereby justifying, that what accompanies that trap is binary thinking, something we've talked about on the show a million times. So what it, what it means is, is that if you think that trying to understand means that you are thereby justifying, you are probably going to be trapped in a, it's either this or that. That if you are willing to, uh, you know, talk about uh, what happened in terms of 1,200 Israelis losing their lives in a, an attack, hostages being taken, then you obviously don't care about the Palestinian people in any way, right? Or if you are calling for, uh, you know, a, a ceasefire, if you're calling for the stopping of indiscriminate bombing in Palestine, if you are calling for so, uh, a, a way forward for autonomy and uh, self-determination for Palestinian people, you're clearly anti-Semitic and you're clear, or you just clearly are for Hamas. I guess that's what you're saying. And again, right, you see what happens there? It's, it's, if you if you fall into the one trap, you're probably going to be trapped into binary thinking as well. It's a force. It's a you... force choice, right? That's what you're describing. Yeah. That binary thinking. You've got either this or that. It's uh, to give the humorous example. It's Stephen Colbert when he used to interview people. He'd be like, he'd get some Democrat. He'd be like, so George W. Bush, great president or the greatest president, right? And of yeah. course, they don't want either option, but that's what it does, right? It forces you into a binary like you're describing where you have to choose a choice, neither one of which is really the choice. So I want to give you just two examples and um, about this, Dan. One is uh, there are a lot of um, pro-Palestine pro rallies happening. And I, you know, people will ask me, are you pro-Palestine? And when I say yes... What I mean is I'm pro-Palestine in the sense that A, no one ever anywhere should experience an inhumane, indiscriminate uh, mode of warfare that attacks civilians and women and children and people without any consideration, hospitals and, and so on and so forth. I'm also right for self-determination and autonomy and a, a way forward that says this is not uh, an occupied territory. This is not a shadow nation or state. This is a place where Palestinian people have the opportunity, right, to um, to assert for themselves uh, their uh, right to govern, their right to, to livelihoods and so on. However, I'm not going to lie, right? There's also this, this like inhibition in me. Anytime somebody says, are you pro-Palestine? Because let me just take it out of Palestine, Israel. If somebody was like, hey, are you pro-France? I'd be like, well, um, I mean, what, well, I, what, can we get some coffee? What does that mean? I don't, what is it, what do you mean? Because I, like, are, are you talking about like France versus 
Germany's occupying attempt in World War II, then yeah, I am. Are you talking about France's colonial history in Africa? No, I'm not. Are you talking about France's approach, conceptually at least, and philosophically to laicite and secularism and a government that's not bound by religion? Yes. You're talking about what I take to be many Islamic fo Islamophobic policies in France that really marginalize Muslim people. No, you, you see what I'm saying, Dan? It's like, if you make me just be pro-France, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm just looking at you like, I'm not going to, right? So am I pro-Palestine? Here I am on our podcast saying, yes, when that means autonomy, self-determination, the right to determine your government and the freedom in this moment from indiscriminate bombing, from attempted genocide, from a war, from a state that is being funded by our government and others with you know the kinds of weapons that can lead to the destruction of an entire people or displacement of entire people, then yes, I am, you know? Uh, but I, whenever somebody asks me, like, are you pro this? And like, my, what kicks in for me is this forced choice. And I'm like, I don't want to be in a forced choice or I'm either for that or against that. I want to be in a situation where I can actually articulate what I am for in a way that attends to detail and complexity without falling into the traps of either or thinking plus the kind of uh, 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 you know explanation means justification uh, that you talked about here. So I have another one, um, but I'll, I'm going to... I'm going to save it. It's going to come up. We're going to run out of time, and I feel like I'm going to get moving. So give us number two. What is the second? Yeah, what so is the second? The second uh, one, and this this links right into what you're talking about with binary thinking, right? And and these are all related, right? Uh, if people wanted to do like a map of these different fallacies, there's a lot of overlap, right? But I think this ties right in. I, I would call it the sort of the zero sum game fallacy, and the way that this one works is basically that says it's almost like it imagines that there's a, a finite amount of condemnation that we can assign. And that if we assign it to one actor or one action or one organization, it somehow means we have to like not condemn another one. Uh, the 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 metaphor of balancing comes in here a lot, and I think that it's it's like this notion that there's something that has to be balanced. And you see this all the time, for example, with just blanket support for Israel, right? The notion that I support Israel, therefore. If I were to condemn anything that Israel does, it means that somehow I'm not supporting Israel anymore, right? It's exactly the binary thinking that you're talking about, right? But we have also seen it. So, so I, I want to condemn that, right? Somebody can say, I support, you talk about autonomy and all of that. I support the right of Israel to exist. I support the right of the state of Israel to, to be autonomous and self-directing and so forth as every nation state should be. Absolutely. Cool. You can also oppose the policies of the state of Israel to, say, the Palestinians, right? But there, I think that there's a fallacy people fall into that if I criticize them on that, I somehow can't support them over here, right? It's like there's only so much support or condemnation that we can have, and we have to sort of balance that out. And this, this is one that cuts, I think, across the ideological spectrum in different ways. It takes shape in different ways, but it's the same fallacy. It's the same logic. It's the same flaw that forces us into that binary thinking that you're describing. And it was on full, uh, full display this week uh, in, a, in a couple really problematic ways. One was um, the Democratic uh, Representative uh, Jayapal, right, was in uh, an interview on CNN with Dana Bash. And Dana Bash pressed her to condemn Hamas's use of sexual violence as a weapon of war, right? Now, 
real discussions to be have about like sort of why that question was asked then and what the aim of it is and you know so on and so forth right here for that we don't have time but that's a real question but it was disappointing because she flubbed the question badly in my view right and what she did uh bash accused her and some progressives of being quote downright silent on the issue she pushes back and appealed to the fact that they, quote, always talk about the impact of war on women in particular and cites work that she did with like during the Iraq war and so forth. But when she was pressed on whether this had explicitly included Hamas this fall, right, as this was going on, she fell into the fallacy trap, right? And what she ended up saying was or sort of suggesting that condemnations of sexual violence against women as an act of war by Hamas needed to be balanced by or sort of brought up with an understanding of Israeli violations of humanitarian law in the conflict, right? Now, let me be really clear about this. I'm absolutely with you and agree everything that you said and summarized so effectively about what appear to be, to me as a non-specialist, violations of international law and humanitarian law in the way that, that Israel is conducting operations in Gaza. Cool. I am also going to unequivocally condemn the use of sexual violence as an act of war anywhere it happens, including Hamas in October, November, right? Well, and I think we'll both, we can both say sexual violence anywhere, Period. anytime, Period. any place doesn't like that's one of those moments where you're like, there is no there is no context for sexual violence. Yeah. You know, is sexual violence meaning without consent in the form of assault in the form of right. I'm not talking about two adults engaging yeah. in some sort of yep. right. I'm talking about right. Okay. Yeah. So, and explicitly yeah. as a form of, of warfare and torture in this case, right? So I condemn both of those things. Uh she issued a statement later, kind of walking that back and trying to say that she condemns them unequivocally. But but what people who listen to it's in the code, you know that for me the rhetoric matters, right? Rhetoric tells us oftentimes what we're feeling, what we're thinking. It tells us the sort of social codes that are circulating that we may not even be aware of. What I think that that does is it, it gives voice to or expression to that sense that if I condemn Hamas on this, I somehow can't be critical of what Israel does, right? The either or. There's only so much condemnation to go around. And if I want to condemn violations of humanitarian law uh, from Israel, I have to kind of pull back or be silent on some of the violence that occurred uh, by Hamas. And what I'm saying is we have to reject that fallacy. We have to reject that option. <laughs> Unfortunately, we live in a world that is terrible enough that there is plenty of condemnation to go around, right? We can condemn, we should condemn, in my view, human rights violations uh, by Israel in the way that they're conducting this, right? And I'm with you watching what the UN says, the, the data that they have, the things that they put out. I'm I'm also, as you say, going to unequivocally condemn sexual violence. You had a similar thing. I was going to touch on this briefly, where you had the presidents of Harvard and uh, University of Pennsylvania and MIT sort of hauled in uh, in front of Congress, uh, in front of the House. Um, these people are paid a lot, and they have like PR people and stuff. And I don't know if they didn't do coaching or what, but they walked into a trap when they were asked. Would, if, if a student on your campus or somebody advocated for the genocide of Jewish people, okay, let me pause and just say I've not heard of that happening on college campuses, okay? Would your policies against uh, harassment and bullying and so forth protect those? And all three of them kind of hemmed and hawed and didn't, wouldn't just come out and say yes, right? And then they had to issue statements later. 
The answer to that is really easy. It is free speech is protected unless you threaten individuals or groups with violence, and then it's not. We talk about this with Trump all the time. What do I think it shows? Again, I think it shows that reluctance to, to, to just come out and condemn something because I think there's a concern, and this is that fallacy at work, that, well, if we condemn anti-Semitic speech over here, does it mean that we can't also be critical of Israel's policies over here, right? And I think that's what enables these really, really problematic links between, in some cases, pro-Palestinian positions and people who do use that as a license for anti-Semitism, right? So that's the second sort of fallacy I think is there is this notion that, that you know, it's, it's like they're buckets. You've got two buckets and you can only pour so much condemnation into one or the other. You have to balance them instead of being able to say, no, we're going to call out moral condemnation when and as it should be called out. And that can be all over the political spectrum, all over the, the religious or, or, uh, or ideological spectrum. Yeah, a couple examples I want to give, and I want to touch on uh, everything you just said. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back, and we'll just continue this discussion. Be right back. All right, so, Dan, I think that we are trained to do the two buckets thing, the zero-sum thing. And I think we're trained uh, in a number of ways. One of them is just internet culture. So uh, I don't want to be somebody who brings up a lot of sports on this show just all the time for a lot of reasons. But if you watch sports, and it, it doesn't matter what sport, you can watch soccer, you can watch football, you can watch fencing, you can watch rugby, uh, whatever it may be, there's inevitably going to be like a conflict where, you know, maybe it's a, two players get in a fight, maybe it's a referee and a player, maybe it's an altercation, a disagreement, a referee in tennis being uh, unfair to a player. I don't know what we can, okay? But in our culture is like, who's who who's to blame right and you and you get on the like comment threads and you look at the clips and somebody has a different angle and somebody has a different way to look at right and and here's the goal the goal is you come down on team this or team that and that's it i think right this happens and i'm going to make an example that might feel silly but friends i'm not being blasé or jokey i just i think this example will help us understand this happens with celebrity divorces. And I know, Dan, you're very up on celebrity divorces. Don't open the can of worms, Dan. You, All right. You know you that's a lot my of... hobby, right? Clearly, Dan? that's what I'm into. Okay. I don't want to hear about Travis Kelsey. Into... Okay. But here's the thing. is like when you get to the celebrity divorce, it's like, well, who's, whose fault? Did Brad Pitt cheat? Was Angelina Jolie doing this? Right? Was Ben Affleck doing that? Was Jen... I, I heard Jennifer Lopez, blah, blah, blah. Right? And everybody's like, team this, team that. And you, and it's, you know, when, when people have a relationship that falls apart, it's, it's so much easier when one person was just clearly being unfaithful or backstabbing and everyone can be like, well, you're out. Okay, I'm with, I'm with uh, so-and-so over here. Those kinds of things, um, they do a number of things for us. They're, they allow us to go to bed at night thinking, all right, I'm on the right side. I know what is right and wrong. I feel good. There's no ambiguity. There's no complexity. There's no gray area. There's no uh, murkiness, no fog. It's just they're wrong. I'm with them over there because they're right or they were the attacker. So I'm with the victim and that's it, right? So I see how this happens. But when it and here's always been my contention as a person as a podcaster, as a scholar, as a teacher, when it comes to life's most important things, that is when we should have the willingness, the fortitude, the discipline to say, I'm going to not give in 
to the either or zero sum, right? I mean, you called it the zero sum situation. I'm not going to give in to zero sum when it comes to life's most important things. Then this is part of, I think, the reason both of us left evangelicalism is because so many of life's most important issues, abortion, sexuality, gender, salvation, are you going to heaven, was reduced to zero sum, one or the other, right? It's either this or that. And so I'll give one more example, and then I'll throw it back to you for number three. Uh, I think a lot of people are aware of this, but this week, the House of Representatives in the United States uh, passed uh, a resolution that, and I'm quoting now, clearly and firmly states that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. So I know you're going to have things to say about this, but the House uh, passed this. Now, the House is Republican controlled with a small majority. 92 Democratic members abstained by voting present. Uh, some Democrats did vote for this, okay? But you're saying anti-Zionism uh, anti is anti-Semitism. So you're basically saying it's a zero-sum game. If you criticize Israel, you are anti-Semitic. Zero-sum. Which one are you, you going to go for, okay? And right, people have resisted this, I think rightly, because what this means is like, if I criticize Israel, Israel, the state, if I criticize Benjamin Netanyahu, if I criticize Israel's policies on anything from like childcare, healthcare, all the way down to what is happening in Southern Gaza right now, am I anti-Semitic? Does that mean that I hate people who have the identity as a Jew, somebody who is religiously or ethnically Jewish? It does not. But you can see that this is like, that the Republican House of Representatives doing a forced choice, as you said earlier, and making it a zero sum. Hey, you over here, you over there. Which one? It's you either have to put your money on red or black. We're playing roulette. You decide. And right, people are like, but they also want to force Democrats and others into a position where they do not vote for this. And then they can get on the campaign trail and get on TV and say, oh, look, the Democrats are anti-Semitic. The Democrats hate Israel. This rep over here hates Israel. That's what they want. And so it's politically expedient. All right. Thoughts on that. And then give us uh, number three. If, if I'll you like. come into that. And I mean, really, as I'm thinking about this, this wraps together a couple. This is like, I think the last of these like big fallacies, but it links on this. And that that is to conflate the political state of Israel with the Jewish people. Right. And what, what do I mean by that, right? So I got to get, I know I'm always wonky, but I got to get even a little bit wonkier, right? When we talk about a political state, we mean like this political organization, it's recognized by the UN, it has a government, the government isn't, doesn't reduce just to the people who are in power and so forth. It's, it's a geopolitical state, uh, prides itself on being, you know, as it, as it says that, you know, the, the only democratic uh, country in the Middle East and so on and so forth, right? And then you have the Jewish people, right? Everybody who's Jewish. Uh, and that can mean a lot of different things to folks, right? That can be religious identity, ethnic identity. You have secular Jewish people, obviously a lot of different ways to be Jewish, um, many of whom live in Israel, right? But many of whom don't. Uh, the two largest population Jewish countries in the world are the U.S. and Israel, right? And I think w exactly what you're describing is the fallacy. And this one, I think, is like the bread and butter much more on the political ideological right. I think that this operates more there. But I think there is that, that I'm just going to say it, a kind of older generation of Democrats. We've talked about this, right? The changing 
view among the Democratic Party about uh, Israel-Palestine and how that kind of breaks down on generational lines, right? So you've got this kind of younger generation of lawmakers who are more critical uh, of Israel than, say, Biden, you know, the Bidens, the Clintons, that that sort of era of, of the Democratic Party. And what that does, as you say, is to say that if you critique what this political state does, the country, this political unit, if you critique its policies, you are critiquing the Jewish people. And that is a conflation that ju it just doesn't stand for a lot of reasons, right? As you said, um, it, it tends to be sort of selectively used, right? So uh, you said, I, I don't know uh, what Israel's like, I don't know, income tax policy is. I don't, I don't know how income taxes work in Israel. Um, but I'll bet there are people who don't like their policy, uh, whatever it is, right? If you want to choose a policy that you know people are going to disagree with, just choose taxes. Does that mean everybody who like opposes Israel's tax model is anti-Semitic? I, I don't think so. That sounds ridiculous. That feels ridiculous to us. The question I would have when folks bring this up is if that's ridiculous, why is it ridiculous to suggest that, you know what, maybe I could oppose or raise critical questions about the state of Israel and its policy to the Palestinians, and that has nothing to do with the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with Judaism versus Islam. It has nothing to do with the rights to exist or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's about the political policies of a political state. It's a political question, right? Um, and and we, we've talked about this before, and I know other people do too. Does it mean that all the people in Israel who don't support Israeli policy, it seems nonsensical to say that they're all anti-Semitic, right? Uh, lots of Jews in the United States, lots of Jewish people do not agree with uh, Israel's policy toward the Palestinians. Lots do. But lots don't. Does it mean that they're anti-Semitic? It doesn't. It sort of doesn't even make sense. But this is one of those, and, and it can be really complicated, uh, as you say, uh, it, because Judaism can be so many different things. You have the history of Israel coming again out of the Holocaust, out of uh, a sort of European history, and so forth. But this is one of the big fallacies that is, I think, used often just as a conversation stopper. That's what the name the, the name of the game is. Just as you say, it's a it's political theater sometimes. It's a way to force people into positions. It's a way to stop conversations. Uh, it's one of the most sensitive, complex issues to deal with, but it's one that I think we, ha we have to come to terms with, right? The same way that uh, I don't think that you're anti-American uh, if you critique what a particular president does, right? Or, or uh, you know, U.S. policies on different things. We've talked about this a lot. There's more to say about that, but I, I think that touches on everything you're saying as well, that conflation. And just one thing that I've heard people say, people have said this to me, emails and other places, and I know they, they're thinking them. Well, hey, you've, you voted for Netanyahu. You voted. I mean, people will say this about Hamas. Oh, the Palestinians chose Hamas, right? And again, that's a whole thing to jump into. We're, we're going to run out of time. We don't have 40 minutes to do that. But I'll just say in 2016, Dan, Donald Trump, won the popular, uh, excuse me, he won the electoral college, but he lost the popular vote by about two percentage points. Uh, about 60% of eligible Americans voted in, in 2016. I'll just round up. That's not quite that much. If Donald Trump got less than half of that vote, we can just say with rough and, and quick and dirty numbers here, about 30% of Americans voted for Donald Trump to be president. He didn't even win a plurality, right? Not just a, a majority. He did not win a plurality of American voters. 
So we could dig into the numbers of yet Netanyahu's victory. We can talk about what happened with how Hamas came to power, you know, close to two decades ago. We can do all of that. But but I think if, if somebody says to you, well, they voted for him. So this Israel is is uh, is the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the state of Israel. Uh, the American people are the American government. You know what I mean? Like now you're in a place where you're like, that's so uh, dangerous. And it's so betrays the, what is actually real on the ground. One more example is we always say red states aren't red like Texas. Go to Texas, y'all. Do you think that 98% of Texas is like, you know who I love? Uh, Ted Cruz. You know who my favorite is? Greg Abbott. There are so many folks who are people of color, who are not people of color, who are queer, who are straight, who are Christian, who are not Christian in Texas, who are not up for what's happening with their state government. And yet the state government, right? So anyway, we need to separate those two. All right. Give just, us your just third. One, one yeah, example, yeah, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll stop after this. But here, here's an example to make that point is I, I mentioned 9-11. I bring up the 9-11 example because it's far enough in the rearview mirror that I think it can illustrate things and maybe turn the volume and the heat down a little bit. Bin Laden, uh, in statements that he wrote after the 9-11 attack, responded to the accusation that they had killed lots of innocent civilians. His response was, they were Americans, they're in a democracy, they voted for their leaders, therefore they are not innocent. I mean, that's it's Bin Laden logic. It's the same logic that Bin Laden uses, whether we're going to use it about Israeli leadership, whether we're going to use it about uh, Hamas leadership, whether we're going to use it about American leadership, we have to be able to distinguish states, political states, from everybody in them. They do not conflate to this. And, and I think that's the key point. So you've got other things to tell us. I think that's enough of fallacious reasoning for the day uh, for me. Um, yeah. Well, what are some other, uh, lots of other no, things I... to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've taken us down enough rabbit holes for the day, right? Well, no, I'm laughing because somebody on the internet's going to be like, Dan just admitted that everything he said is fallacious reasoning. I think what you meant is that uh, enough reasoning about enough fallacies. Of... How's that? Right? No, I, yeah, I think I, what what I think you were saying is you 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 kind of gave us a quasi logic class, like kind of kind of the things we would do in logic class, and then we we kind of applied those to what what's happening right now in the world. Uh, let's take a break. We'll come back and uh, I'll, I'll get into a couple of those things. All right. So one thing that I want to I want to link, Dan, is there are growing calls, uh, increasing calls for Biden to, you know, to to advocate for a ceasefire in uh, in Israel, Palestine. Uh, what the response has been uh, from the Biden administration is they're not going to do that. A and here's some of the kind of reasoning that's that's coming out. OK, so. Uh, this is from a piece by Karen DeYoung at WAPO. Look, we share the concerns about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Name me one other nation, any nation that's doing as much as the United States to alleviate the pain and suffering of the people of Gaza. You can't. You just can't. The United States, through President Biden, is leading the effort to get trucks, food, water, medicine, and fuel into the people of Gaza. Name another nation that is doing more to urge the Israeli counterparts, our Israeli counterparts, to be as cautious and deliberate as they can in the prosecution of the military operations. You can't. So this is another form of fallacy in my mind, Dan, because it's like, well, you want us to do that? Name another group that's doing as much as we are on this. And it's like, well, I didn't, I, I wasn't asking you about 
you know, who's doing the most. I just asked, why don't you do this? And I, this is going to sound silly, or, but this is one of those. Or why don't you do more, right? You may yeah. be doing the most. Does that mean that it's what you should be doing or that it's enough? No. Like that's, that's the, the, that's the fallacy in there. And, and the flip side can be, can you name a nation that is giving more aid to Israel for the operation they're killing, uh, carrying out militarily? Can you? Right. So if you are saying we're doing the most to help Gaza, the next question logically is, well, you're doing one hand is doing a lot, you say, for humanitarian purposes in Gaza. But the other hand is saying, hey, Israel, here's this much money, right, to carry out your operation in Gaza. And so a lot of folks would say what you should be doing if you want to do humanitarian aid is, I don't know, condition the aid you're giving to Israel on one hand on the, the fact that they will not carry out indiscriminate bombing and commit war crimes. That would be a good idea. So here's, a, here's some more from, from uh, that piece. There would be no hostages released and no aid coming into Gaza at all if it weren't for U.S. intervention and Biden's personal intervention, said Aaron Miller of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a former diplomat who advised both Republican and Democratic administrations on Arab-Israeli issues. It's not as if the Biden administration has done nothing. Okay. So, you know, he is admitting, Miller is admitting, Biden administration is A, providing humanitarian aid to Gaza, and B, Blinken and others are trying to convince Netanyahu and his government. You can't do this, right? You can't approach this conflict in this way. This is not humanitarian. It is not okay. It is not good, right? Miller continues, however, but let's be clear. Biden has tethered himself to Israel's war aims, and he has now attached his administration to a freight train that is charging through Gaza with the aim of eradicating Hamas military presence above and below ground and killing its leadership. This is the part, Dan, that has really uh, become, I, I think, the issue. And it's the issue for me, and it's the issue for, for others, which is he has tied his train to Netanyahu and others' war train. So yes, you can provide aid. Yes, you can go urge them to have a ceasefire. But if you're, if you're going to say, we'll give you the billions of dollars no matter what, we just hope you use it for the right reasons. We'll give you the, the, all the aid you want or that we can get through. We just hope you're smart with it. You know, like, right. There's a world where you can say, hey, uh, we're not giving you the money unless you agree that there's no way you're going to use it for the kinds of military operations we have seen that are akin to attempted genocide. This is Politico, Alexander Ward, Jonathan Lemire. This month, congressional Democrats first quietly and then publicly came out in support of imposing conditions on the, the aid to Israel that I'm talking about. Bernie Sanders was first out of the gate, proposing that Israel not get any more weapons until it stops the indiscriminate bombing of Gaza and commits to serious peace talks, among other stipulations. Biden's comment appears to have made other lawmakers more comfortable to advocate for the once toxic idea, though many Republicans and Democrats remain opposed to it. So Chris Murphy, who I generally uh, usually you know, appreciate, especially when it comes to his, his approach to gun violence and gun laws, Senator from, from Connecticut, we regularly condition our aid to allies based upon compliance with U.S. and international law. It's very consistent with the ways in which we have dispensed aid, especially during wartime, to allies. 
I hear you, Senator Murphy. But about half an hour ago, I read a letter from the UN Secretary of General about Article 99, calling for a meeting of the Security Council because there is a humanitarian crisis that threatens international peace and order uh, as a result of what is happening in Gaza. So I hear you that we regularly say we won't give aid to allies unless they follow international law. Guess what? It seems like they're not. So we should probably not be afraid to say publicly that we are totally going to support you, Israel, in some way, if you're the Biden administration, but it cannot be for this. We will not support that. I'm sorry. Okay. This leads to uh, Biden losing support uh, 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 around the country. I'll talk about that in a minute, but throw it to you. Thoughts on this part? Just a, a couple of things about the, the politics of this that I think also comes in um, is I think we, we can't dive into this, but I think it's also worth just remembering that layered on to all of this is, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's a highly embattled, right, uh, Israeli prime minister. Um, Israel has an interest, not just, just you know, self-preservation and such, but Netanyahu has an interest in this conflict because Israel, his, his administration is coming under immense criticism from within Israel and other places for the intelligence failure that led to this, uh, for in the mind of many Israelis, pr failing to protect them uh, from this attack. And so all of this is also a way of showing that they are doing something, right? And, and, and sort of putting up a smoke screen to avoid dealing with that, all of which is just to say there needs to be a counter pressure to that because there's an immense political pressure in Israel to undertake this kind of action. So much so that there was uh, news that broke this week of like leaked audio tapes of some of the released uh, hostages engaging with the Netanyahu administration. And some of them were critical of the way it's being carried out. They talked about they had to be moved from facility to facility because they were being shelled by the Israeli military, like where they were being held. So the indiscriminate nature of the attack was, as it comes out, even threatening the hostages who's supposedly taken, uh, undertaken for, all of which is to say there's a lot of pressure uh, coming from and on Netanyahu because of his sort of personal and political precarious position to undertake this kind of really, really violent, aggressive tactics and so forth. It needs something with the weight of, for example, the United States to really push back on that. And so to reiterate the points that you're making, it has to be harder than, well, as long as you're, you know, following international law. Well, they're not. So let's start with that and see where that goes. And if you listen to Netanyahu, Netanyahu's indicated that his intention is after this is over, there will be no uh, Palestinian territory, you know. Uh, that what is it, now the Palestinian occupied territory will just be Israeli territory. I mean, if you listen and then Yahoo, that's how he's talking. And then you hear Blinken and Biden and they're like, well, yeah, after this is finished, we're really hoping that there'll be a kind of uh, approach, a bilateral approach that will include, you know, self-determination for the Palestinian blah, blah. And it's like, it's like two different realities from these, from these camps. Now, what's happening as a result of this, Dan, is that you have uh, various constituencies that really helped push Biden over the finish line in 2020, now openly saying no. So uh, there, uh, this is from Al Jazeera, Muslim American leaders in several pivotal states pledged on Saturday to rally their communities against President Joe Biden's bid for re-election. 
due to his steadfast backing of Israel's war in Gaza. The hashtag abandoned Biden campaign began with Minnesota Muslim, Minnesota Muslim Americans demanded Biden call for a ceasefire by Halloween, and it has spread to Michigan, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and uh, and uh, Florida. There's another uh, set of data out there that shows that Biden is losing the enthusiasm of young voters, uh, people under 30 who had a have a not only had an impact on 2020 but whose enthusiasm for things like reproductive rights have been a big deal for Democratic wins since then. Uh, This is Tessa Stewart writing at uh, Rolling Stone uh, about uh, the Biden campaign reaching out to Gen Z influencers uh, to get them to kind of uh, use their millions of followers on TikTok and their big platforms to to advocate for Biden in 2024. Uh, Here's what uh, some of uh, is written there. In 2024, the Biden campaign is doubling down with plans to add even more than roughly two dozen staffers who worked on the campaign's influencer program in 2020. But this time around, there are real questions about whether that strategy will work. So there's one example in the piece, Dan, that I want to highlight, and that is George Lee Jr. George Lee Jr. has 2.4 million followers as the Conscious Lee on TikTok. George Lee has been invited to the State of the Union watch party at the White House and is somebody that has been... uh, courted, I shall say, to be a a kind of, hey, vote for Biden kind of voice, or at least a vote against Trump voice on TikTok. Here's what uh, Lee says now. I would imagine I will probably never get invited again, talking about the White House, especially with the way I've been so unapologetic with this Palestinian genocide that's happening. Joe Biden is really shooting himself in the foot. When we start talking about the lesser of two evils, a lot of my followers, all three million of them, are literally asking the question like, damn, so the lesser of the two evils is the one that is supporting genocide? Noted, noted, noted. To me, Dan, this is a big deal. And uh, it's a big deal for all of the reasons we've talked about today. It's a big deal in human terms. It's a big deal in suffering terms. It's a big deal in on the ground, people losing their lives, their livelihoods. It's all of that. Also a big deal when it comes to this country and the possibility of Trump getting reelected. If young people lose enthusiasm, if constituencies such as Muslim Americans, Black Americans, Latino, Latinx Americans lose enthusiasm to vote, if they just say, I'm going to stay home, if they do something, right, that says, a la 2016, you know, both candidates, Hillary Clinton, George, uh, Donald Trump, not not my choice, I'm staying home. If that happens in any measurable, significant way, Joe Biden will be in trouble. And I'm going to throw it out there. We're not going to talk about it today. I, I'm sure we're going to come back to this idea, Dan, but I, I'm, I'm not declaring this. I'm not coming out in favor of it. I'm not saying this is what should happen. So if you're an academic out there, this is not a normative statement, okay? I have thought over the last couple of weeks, this could be a situation that Biden could drop out over. I, I, and I'm serious about it. I'm serious that I can see a situation over the next two months where this issue is not going to go away. I kind of think Biden bet on the fact that we would forget about what he promised when it came to student loans, right? I kind of think Biden forgot, you know, or, or was hoping we'd forget about some other stuff. 
hey, those 28-year-olds, they'll forget. They'll forget that I didn't actually come through on student loans like I, I said, even when I tried to do Supreme Court or not or Republicans or not. Hey, they might forget what I promised on this or that. I don't know, Dan. I just don't know. I don't know. Young people haven't forgotten about reproductive rights. You, you are with college students every day. You know what this is like. Are these young folks going to be like, yeah, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and tick the box because if enough of them are not going to and some of the constituencies that Democrats take for granted, people that feel like they are used at times, black voters, black women, mentoritized groups, where are we? And I bring this up as somebody who has consistently said, if Trump is reelected, American democracy may no longer exist. And so th that is in that is a part of what I'm talking about here. Thoughts on this before we have to go. We'll come back. I'm not asking you to tell me if Biden should drop out. I'm not trying to say yes or no. Forced, forced choice right now. I'm just saying thoughts about some of the support he's losing among uh, folks on this issue and the, and the unwillingness to kind of stand up and put any conditions on the aid, et cetera. My, my first thought is I thought you were going to announce your candidacy, and I was really excited there, right? Um, so, you know, thanks for the letdown on that. Um, no. I, I, I asked my wife. She says, look, we just bought the minivan, and I'm not putting a campaign thing on the side of it. So uh, you do what you want. And I said, well, if I can't put my face on the side of the minivan, I don't know how I get elected. And we had a big argument, and that's where it ended. So I'm not running. I'm not, I'm right, not, good. Not, 2028, probably. Yep. Everybody got to hear it here. Um, no, in all seriousness, um, you know, the, as, as you're talking about all that, and I've been following all those things too, Donald Trump won the presidency because of a lack of enthusiasm. Like, I mean, that, that's, I think it's that simple. Whether that was partly in complacency, people who just assumed that all the polls were right and Hillary Clinton was going to kind of cruise to victory, but also a lot of people who just were not excited about a Democratic candidate that they didn't feel like spoke for them. They, they weren't supporting Trump. They weren't going to support Trump. Uh, I cannot imagine, maybe I'm wrong, I can't imagine most of these Muslim Americans who are angry with Biden right now turning around and voting for Trump. I imagine that you know, they're just not going to vote for Biden. But it cost us. It cost us a lot uh, in uh, 2016 to 2020. And I'm, I'm with you. In every analysis I read, Trump's own statements, everything says a second Trump term will be worse and more authoritarian and more fascist than a first term. So, yeah, I think this is incredibly worrying. And the same thought has occurred to me, and we'll watch it, and we'll see uh, what the Biden administration does. We'll see what other things happen between now and then because the world throws these curves, and sometimes they, you know, they help or hurt somebody. Um, but yeah, there's a, a growing lack of enthusiasm and I don't think it's picking up. I don't think it's that there was a lack and it's, you know, people are more enthusiastic. I think it's getting worse for Biden. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's worth watching. I don't know where it goes and I'm also not making a prediction about that, but I, I think it's, it's, it's something to pay attention to and something to think about. Biden's been running for president since like 1944. So you know, the idea that he's going to be like, yeah, not my time. I'll just, I'm going to bow out. It's it's probably not realistic, right? So it would take a lot. It would take, you know, and I'd have to look up my American history, but I think it's like Rutherford B. Hayes, the last guy who served four years and was like, I'm good. I'm going to, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to go play pickleball. So the idea that he would do this just because he would wake up one day and think it's the right thing to do is, is far from 
uh, far from realistic. But anyway, we'll keep an eye on it. I will tell you, I'll just last comment on this. Cornell West is, is a person that some of those folks that we're talking about, young people, uh, people of color, Muslims in this country, will find in him a overwhelmingly anti-war, uh, anti-Palestinian you know, uh, genocide, for lack of a better term, pro-Palestinian voice. And so, you know, I haven't tracked what his numbers are right now, but Cornell West is somebody who I who I imagine that some of the students that you you know and I know, some of the young folks, some of the folks that feel used by the Democratic Party, will say, "Sure, let's do it." Um, Cornell West might be my man. And uh, back to your very first point for today, um, I understand that. I don't think that's the right. I, I will say openly, I'm I don't think that's the right move, but I do understand it. I do. I can think myself into it. I understand the rationale. And uh, I, I, I can definitely see from the perspective of various people in the country why that would be something you would think would be, would be good. All right. We really got to go. I got a, I got a reason for hope, Dan. And that is that Karen Smith was sworn in to her school board post, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And she swore in, not on the Bible. Nothing against the Bible. Well, you know, I got a complicated relationship with the Bible. But she swore in on banned books. That's how you do it, Dan. That is how you do it. She swore in on banned books. That's like a mic drop move. Ooh, man. I'm going to hang up right now and make an Etsy shirt of Karen Smith doing that. Just like deal with it. You know what I mean? Props to you, Karen Smith. Badass. All right, go ahead. Mine, we've already touched on it. It was it was the UN, right? And um, I think the one thing that has happened, we, the UN gets a lot of crap, right? And And- because of the structure of the Security Council and the U.S. role on it and permanent members having veto power and all of that, it's very hard for the U.N. to do things without the support of states like the U.S. or Russia, depending on the issue. Um, but I feel like the U.N. and the secu- uh, secret- Secretary of the U.N. have kept this issue front and center, have remained vocal about the humanitarian crisis uh, in Gaza and when they they made this move uh, that you were talking about, and the sort not unprecedented but extremely rare nature of it, I think spoke volumes. And I think that 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 creates a lot of just global visibility and increasing pressure on the United States uh, to to step up. And uh, so, yeah, that was my reason for hope is is that the UN I think is is pulling the levers it can pull to try to make something happen um, on the ceasefire front uh, in Gaza. All right, friends, want to th- say thank you to all our patrons, all the people that support us, all the people that uh, send messages, reach out. Uh, Dan says this on the code, but I'll say it too. It's uh, just appreciate you and and care about you and thankful for you. Uh, if you wrote us an email or a message, we're not actively ignoring you. Uh, it is it is a, um, every day trying to do this show is a lot, a lot, a lot of work, as you can imagine, trying to do all the other jobs that we do and trying to stay up with email, trying to stay up with messages is is... Uh, we do our best. We're, we're, we really are uh, trying to balance everything. If you'd like to support us, check out the, the show notes. Uh, I'll just say coming Monday, December 11, 2023, is the first episode of Pure White by our friend and colleague, Sarah Malziner. It's all about the white supremacist origins of evangelical purity culture. Uh, you may have lived through purity culture. You may think you know a few things about it just as a historical subject, but I guarantee you, Sarah will give you a, a, just a absolutely new vista on how to understand purity culture and all of its 
trappings. So take a look at that. It's in the show notes and uh, we hope you'll listen. Other than that, we'll be back next week. I have a big interview next week, Dan. I'm very excited. So all of you should listen on Monday to my interview with Representative James Tallarico of the great state of Texas, who talks all about being a Christian who is against Christian nationalism, fighting uh, the school vouchers, the Ten Commandments, and the other various right-wing measures happening in Texas. Uh, Tallarico went viral uh, last summer for what he said about the Ten Commandments bill. Uh, It's an amazing interview, and I hope you all will listen. It's in the code. The Weekly Roundup will be there. Other than that, we'll say thanks for listening. Have a good day. Thanks, Brad. Axis Mundi.